This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. It is a Tuesday drive. Hope your afternoon's off to a good start. Robert Walsh has had a really rough day because his Ravens took it on the chin last night to the Chiefs. We'll talk about that game in just a bit. But I want to talk college football because now we have some sample size for the top conferences, and I feel pretty confident the ACC is every bit as good as the SEC. Now, I know what you're thinking when you hear me say that. People are really passionate about college football in a way I don't think you really see with other sports. You might be thinking, oh, Josh is a hack. Josh is trying to do the sports talk radio thing. He's trying to be the hot take guy. Come on, Josh. This is ridiculous. You're embarrassing yourself, a la whatever. Hear me out here. National perception is the only reason this sounds like a hot take now that Notre Dame's in the league. But speaking of Notre Dame, this is how national perception generally works. You have Gene Wojciechowski, who's a tremendous college football reporter. He's writing the first week of the college football season this thank you Notre Dame piece that's making it sound like the ACC would not know how to go on if Notre Dame wasn't in the league. Thank you Notre Dame for saving the college football season, which is a load of garbage. If you know the actual facts... It is the other way around. The ACC saved Notre Dame. Notre Dame, if they didn't have the Atlantic Coast Conference, their schedule would look a lot like BYU, where they're trying to put together an entire schedule on the fly as teams drop them and conferences go towards playing only conference members, playing teams that they're familiar with. So it really was the other way around, but national perception, Notre Dame's in the league, oh, it benefits the ACC a lot more than it benefits Notre Dame, which is not true. Wake Forest, national perception. Oh, they're not an uh, an elite program, and I'm not saying they're right up there with Clemson, Alabama, or anything like that, but they make bowl games every single year, so you should expect at this point Dave Clawson is going to have a winning year more often than he has losing seasons. But every year, here comes the ACC preseason poll, and the Deeks are picked, 5th, 6th, or 7th. It almost seems like every year that happens. They're always picked that way. You see the bowl projections. They're not going to a bowl game according to the experts. Because, let's be honest, these people probably aren't watching a lot of Wake and the national perception such that Wake's not supposed to be pretty good, so we're not going to have them with a winning record at season's end. I think this works with the SEC as well. Perception says the SEC is the best. Don't question it. It it just means more. So they're always going to be better than everybody else, even if it's not true. Often in politics, and, and it also applies in sports, we seek affirmation, not information. Something to think about going into the debates tonight, as I think a lot of people will watch what these candidates say and interpret it one way, and then the other side will interpret it the same information another way because the networks that they seek out, the information that they look for is in fact just affirmation for the views they already hold. Getting political, Josh. You need to cut it out here. All right. Here's my case for the ACC. 
the top of both leagues, the SEC and the ACC, they are in lockstep. Each league has a powerhouse. The SEC has Alabama. The ACC has Clemson. They've met four times in the college football playoff. Two wins for the Crimson Tide. Two wins for the Tigers. They are the perennial powerhouses. I get LSU won last year, but LSU just got beat by Mississippi State and K.J. Costello, who was perfectly average at Stanford last year. It was Mike Leach's first game. The Tigers, they are not that good this year. So they're not involved in this conversation at the top of the league. Then you have Georgia in the SEC, who didn't look great against Arkansas, but I'm going to wait and see more games for the Bulldogs before I make a judgment on them. JT Daniels with... Jamie Newman choosing to opt out. He's just now getting up the speed. When he gets out there and he gets a chemistry going with these receivers, I think this could be a really good team. The defense was tremendous on Saturday. George Pickens, I think he's going to be a first-round pick at wide receiver when that time comes. He had the touchdown catch that put Georgia ahead. So I like the Bulldogs. They've been close. They've been knocking on the door. Probably should have won that 2017 national title, but they didn't. So they've been close, but they haven't been able to push open the door. The Notre Dame Fighting Irish can relate to that. They went to the playoff in 17. They played Alabama in the BCS in the last 10 years under Brian Kelly. They're always in the top 10. They're always a national contender. They got Ian Book at quarterback, who was the quarterback of that team that went to the playoff. They played Georgia last year in Athens, and that game went right down to the wire. So I think the top two teams in each conference, they are in lockstep with each other. Beyond that, it gets really interesting. Miami and North Carolina, they have reemerged, and I think they're two of the more intriguing teams in America. Miami has its best quarterback in 20 years in De'Aaron King. The U, when they are back, I think there is going to be a time they come back and they're a national contender because of the history of that program. It's cool to wear the turnover chain. I don't know if it's going to be Manny Diaz. I hope it's going to be Manny because I think the sport's more fun when Miami's good. There's a lot of untapped potential there. Then you got North Carolina, Mac Brown, Hall of Fame coach, national championship winner. There aren't a lot of active national championship winning head coaches. And we're already seeing it on the recruiting trail. He's doing a lot with the Tar Heels, and they have one of the three best quarterbacks in America in Sam Howell. Speaking of quarterbacks, if it is even between the ACC and SEC, I might give the edge to the ACC because I'd take the top four quarterbacks in that conference before I take the best quarterback that the SEC offers. Give me Trevor Lawrence. Give me Howell. Give me Ian Book. Give me De'Eric King at Miami before I take a Bo Nix at Auburn or Kelly Mond, Kellen Mond at Texas A&M. I like what Kyle Trask did last week, but let's see more of it. I think he could be a dark horse for the Heisman Trophy. Boy, did Florida look good in Oxford last weekend. But this isn't me saying the ACC is better than the SEC. I'm saying they're right in line with each other, but the national perception is such that it's not close, that the SEC is the best conference because, air quotes, it just means more. I want to shift things to that Monday night football game. The Chiefs, they're getting a lot of love today, as they should. 
but it seems like most of the coverage and the takeaways from last night had been negative with a lot of people dumping on Lamar Jackson. The same people that said he's a project that should probably be a wide receiver. The same people after he lost his first playoff game to the Chargers saying that this would never work and doubted him. They've all come back to doubt him today, it seems like. Here's my takeaway from last night. Lamar Jackson, we have to remember, is still a developing player. He is only 23 years old. He is a month younger than the first overall pick in the draft this year, Joe Burrow. He's one of the five youngest players, I should say starting quarterbacks, in the entire league. Look at Pat Mahomes. He's 25. He's a little bit more developed. Even after the rough playoff outings and last night, there are only three quarterbacks I'd say I want on my team long-term more than Lamar. And that's Patrick, it's Deshaun, and it's Russell Wilson. That's it. Those are the three quarterbacks. Here are the three areas Lamar needs to work on and develop most. Winning, leadership, and composure. Those are learned traits. You hear coaches say the cliche, oh, leadership isn't coached. Okay, then why are rookies or freshmen never the captains on teams? Because that's something you don't just step into. You need to learn the culture. You need to learn how to win. You need to learn how things are done at a certain level. I don't care what profession you're talking about. Leadership is learned. And the body language last night, I mean, there are things I could defend Lamar for. Hey, you had six drops by your receivers, and that is accurate. But Pat Mahomes' body language is a lot better when he's down versus when Lamar is. That's why I think Patrick Mahomes comes back when he's down 24-0 in a playoff game and trailing by double digits against Tennessee and trailing in the fourth quarter by double digits or two possessions, I should say, to the San Francisco 49ers. Right? They all turn to Patrick Mahomes and look at his body language and he believes it can happen, so they start believing. I never got that vibe from Lamar. And this stat, I think, summarizes that about as well as any stat you're going to find today. Bill Barnwell covers the NFL for ESPN. He said that Lamar, in his three years playing quarterback, this being his third year, has trailed at halftime six times in his career. 0-6 in those games. He's never come back from a halftime deficit. In the same period of time, though, 20 times he's been leading at halftime. That's more than any player in the National Football League. He's gone into halftime with the lead more than any player in the NFL the last three seasons. I don't know which side is more impressive, but that tells me he's 23 years old and he needs to improve on his composure. What I'm talking about, guys looking to him to see what his body language is. When things are great, Lamar Jackson cooks people because his confidence is high. No one's doubting him. No one's second-guessing what he's doing. It's an emotional high. Cam Newton. We saw that with 2015, and we saw it before that. When Cam was tremendous, when Cam was playing well, when Cam was in a good move, it, it was an emotional high. But when Cam struggled, like in the Super Bowl, 
he's walking out of the press conference, right? He's handling things poorly. He's throwing picks. He's making mistakes. That's common. When things are going great, you can't get too high. And when things are going poorly, you can't get too low. That's something you can learn. And I think Lamar is going to be learning that. But I don't think it's fair to have the Lamar-Pat Mahomes comparison just yet. Because Patrick, he has already done everything Lamar's striving to do. Win a playoff game. Win a Super Bowl. Win a Super Bowl MVP. Get the big contract. Pat Mahomes has done all those things already. And I'm not saying Lamar can't do them, but let's wait two years before we have this conversation when Lamar's 25 years old, like Pat Mahomes is right now, before we make judgments on what a developing player can become. Let's go to Jeff and Clemens, who wants in SEC versus ACC. Let's get reckless here. Do I have a point, Jeff, that the ACC might be right in line with the SEC in 2020? Uh, afraid not. You're comparing quarterbacks. SEC is based on defensive tackles, linemen, and athletes. You're Alabama, Georgia, Auburn, and Florida are all better than Carolina and Notre Dame by far. Clemson's the only one who can play with him. Okay, but let um, me ask you this. Uh, you don't think Notre Dame can can go toe-to-toe with Florida? I mean, what's Florida won in the last decade? Uh, Notre Dame, when they play anybody with athletes, gets exposed for slow defensive backs, slow. I mean, Alabama, what would they have them, 32-0 at halftime and basically quit playing in a half just not to embarrass them? Yeah. Clemson did the same thing to them. They don't have the athletes. It is, a, it is an interesting thing, and this is something I'm interested in asking you as well. I think a lot of people, when Clemson wiped the floor with Notre Dame in the playoff a few years ago, they said this is evidence that nobody uh, that, that Notre Dame is just going to get exposed when they play in the college football playoff. I think they lost that game by 24 points. They lost that game. No, they lost it by 26. They lost by 26 in that uh, college football playoff game. A week later, Alabama gets worked by 28 by Clemson. And nobody says that that Alabama team wasn't ready to play at that point. So is it fair to use the measurement of 2012 and 2017 as evidence that Notre Dame can't play with somebody three years later? I think you just look at the overall athletes they have. I mean, they barely, I mean, what they beat Duke by? Uh, they beat, Duke, the they beat Duke by 20. I mean, roughly 20. I think they won yeah, by 15. I mean, 28, 28, 13 and then, was and that. Duke, and then Duke talk, turned around and got walked by Boston College. And that's just like, they're yeah. just, they just don't have the athletes. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, the quarterbacks, yeah. ACC's got quarterbacks, but they don't have. I mean, Carolina against Syracuse the first half couldn't block their three defensive linemen the whole first half. And think what they go to Auburn and Florida and play them guys that have about eight of them guys. Gosh, it, it does have me excited. It had me excited. Uh, North Carolina was slated to play Auburn those first two weekends, and we would have learned a lot, but unfortunately we don't have that game. Um, and that's a real shame. But, Jeff, I appreciate your thought. Thanks for the call, man. Thanks. There you go. And also North Carolina was set to play UCF. UCF's one of the ten best teams I've seen so far. Dylan Gabriel just – Completing passes at a high rate. Really good lefty quarterback. But we're not going to see them play an ACC team. I guess other than Georgia Tech, who they took care of quite handily. But 
having them play North Carolina would have been a really interesting deal. You are listening to WSJS Winston-Salem, WCOG Greensboro, WPC in Burlington, WMFR High Point. Those signals make up Sports Up Giant. So that guy disagrees with me. How about this? In 30 minutes, we'll see if ESPN college football reporter David Hale thinks I'm crazy. Because he's not afraid to say so. He's a guy who's taking shots at me with my Zoom background when I'm talking to Dave Clawson in the press conferences. Not really nice of him to do that, by the way. So we'll see what uh, what Dave has to say when he joins us at 5.30. Back to The Drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. Really excited for this. Campbell coach and Panthers legend Mike Minters with us. His team will be in the triad Friday night. A reminder, Wake Forest football is in action Friday night. 7 o'clock, it is the Campbell Camels facing teams around here in back-to-back weeks. They went up against App State last weekend. Really competitive for the first half of that game. And it's crazy to think, Coach. It just seems like yesterday it was year one with you at Campbell. It's now year eight. Where the hell did all the time go? <laughs> hey, listen, man. You know, time flies when you're having fun. And uh, it's it's been amazing eight years. It's really like two jobs um, with, with Campbell. And I think what what happened, uh, Josh, is the fact that you, you guys probably forgot um, about us um, when I first got there. And then now we, we kind of popping up on the scene again. And so now people are saying, "Man, it's been eight years. It seems like only three. And um, but but it's it's just been an amazing eight years. Yeah, and they're starting to win a lot of games now. And Wake Forest certainly is on notice Friday night. But I want to start with this. I just want to talk some ball with you. As a ten-year safety in the league, when you watch Pat Mahomes doing what he did last night and just his skilled set in general at quarterback, what goes through your mind? Listen, I'm glad I'm coaching. <laughs> this guy is unbelievable at at the quarterback position. And I've always said this as a def- um, a defensive guy, is that when a quarterback can run and throw the football and read defenses the way he is able to read defenses, so he's able to play the game with his with his mind. Man, that's a difficult combination. That's what made Steve Young so good. That's what made him a Hall of Famer. A lot of people forget about him. I mean, you, you. I mean, he, he's the guy that took over for the greatest quarterback of all time before Tom Brady took that, um, took that away from him. But you know, that's the type of stuff that Patrick Mahomes does. Man, you, you cannot, you can never give him any window of opportunity. He's going to take advantage of it, and it's very difficult on a defense because there's only 11 of you guys, and you need probably 13 to stop him. <laughs> Which quarterbacks, Mike, did you hate preparing for the most back when you were with the Panthers? Well, I, I, I would say, um, you know, like a Steve Young. Listen, my, my, my fresh, I should say my rookie year, we playing the uh, 49ers on – Monday night football, right? And so you know I'm excited anyway. And we and 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 Steve Young and and Jerry Rice and all them guys was there, and it was like boom! It was like surgery. 
boom, 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 touchdown. I was like, okay, all right. Boom, 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 touchdown. Oh, whoa, what, what is this? Boom, 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 touchdown. It was like that the whole game. And I was like, there's no way that you can defend this offense. <laughs> this guy is unbelievable. So uh, Peyton Manning, he was, he was um, easier to deal with because it's, it's more textbook stuff that you're going to get. Um, I thought, um, you know, um, Tom Brady was very difficult to, to deal with because of the ability to, you know, navigate in the pocket to then get his receivers open. And so um, they was kind of hard to deal with in the Super Bowl, even though we had two weeks to try to prepare for that offense. I thought that offense was very difficult to, to deal with. And so, um, you know, guys that Michael Vick, now he was the hardest. So I'm going to answer your question. I know I gave you like three or four quarterbacks, but Michael Bick is A1, number one, on trying to prepare to stop him. Oh, yeah. Had me thinking about later years of your career. 2004, when Michael was kind of at his peak. That's just, it was impossible to stop at points. I hear you laughing over there. I just can't picture being in those meeting rooms trying to figure out how to stop that. Hey, you know what? This This is... This is why we drafted Thomas Davis. I remember when we was trying to stop him before that, right? And we said we need to get a, a, a bigger body that can run really fast. And Thomas Davis was uh, coming from Georgia, and we was like, we need to get Thomas Davis. So we actually drafted him to stop Michael Vick, okay? <laughs> that's, that's how important he is and how difficult it was. Our first-round pick we picked, just to stop one man. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Mike Mentor with us here. Campbell head coach getting set for Wake Forest Friday night in Winston-Salem. And speaking of game planning, the thing most defensive guys preparing for Wake Forest highlight with them is the way they carry out their RPOs, which requires edges to be especially disciplined because they carry it out a little bit longer than most teams. What's making them a difficult scout now three days out of this game? Well, I, I think that you, you hit it on the head. It, it's the ability to be patient. And most defensive people can't be patient. They want to run in their gap, run up the field, or, or try to go make a play when they think it's there, get out of their gap, and run inside. And all of a sudden, this guy is out the gate on the outside. And the, and the way that they do it is the quarterback actually, he shuffles with the running back. So when he hands the ball off, he shuffles to the end like a tight end. So he really becomes a tight end, and by the time that he gets out there, then the running back decides which way he's going. And um, so he becomes an extra blocker. Now, he's not blocking anybody. He's just getting people away, which is all you really need to do is screen them off so your running back can get the edge. Um, it's, it's one of the, the most unique um, ways to attack a defense. And and really what you're attacking is their impatience. And that's why people play defense is because they probably have no patience. They just want to go hit somebody. <laughs> and um, they really play against your aggressiveness um, as a defender. And, and I think that's the biggest thing that you've got to tell your defense is slow down and wait. And that's very difficult to do to a defensive guy. And that's what makes these guys so hard. We're with Mike Mentor. 
Panthers legend, Campbell head coach, getting set for Wake Forest on Friday night. I've always been told a good story is a lot better than a hot take and maybe even a million good stats. So you played with a lot of guys that are beloved by the Panthers in history. Julius Peppers, I call him North Carolina Paul Bunyan, where going back to his high school days, there are stories people describe when they're talking about Vance County, things that he used to do way back when that were just amazing. Oh, I got that wrong. Nash County, not Vance County. And with the Panthers and at North Carolina, he did freakish things. What's the craziest athletic feat you ever saw big number 90 do? Listen, um, he we was running 40s, and he ran a 4-5. Okay? <laughs> that That's all you need to know. Anybody that's 300 pounds, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, and can run that fast, it should be legal, you know? <laughs> Um, and, and that was the deal with him. Uh, this guy could do anything. He could, anything that you can imagine a person doing on the football field, he could do. He could have played safety. He could have played corner. And I'm not just talking, man. This guy really had the ability to do these things. He could have played linebacker, as he showed when he went to um, Green Bay later in his career. He started to show his versatility um, being able to play linebacker over there for that 3-4 defense of Don Capers. So this guy, just just unbelievable. What, what I used to mess with Pep about all the time. I said, man, you love basketball too much. I said, if you, if you ever just love football like you love basketball, because he loved basketball. He wanted to play basketball all the time in the locker room. We put up like a, <laughs> we taped up some uh, a box on the wall, and, and that was the the basketball um, goal, and, and we playing basketball in the freaking locker room because Pep loved it so much. And, and my, by the way, I'm a smart man because I picked him to be on my team, and, and we dominated everybody <laughs> that whole year. So I just wanted to say that. Um, but this guy was just unbelievable everywhere. And I said, man, if you ever love football like you love um, basketball, you're going to get a gold jacket. So I guess he, he, um, he changed his mind because he's going to get that gold jacket. I remember David Garrard once told me, he, he said they were playing pickup basketball and he's a year older than Pep. And uh, they said, one day there's this freshman, or he might have been two or three years older than Pep. They said, there's this freshman at, at, at whatever high school who's coming in to play ball with us. And they thought they were just going to work this kid. And it turned out it was Julius Peppers and he's a lot bigger than everybody else. And he worked everybody. Mike Minter with us here. Campbell head coach getting set for Wake Forest on Friday. I'll close with this. Steve Smith. He had a reputation for being abrasive, let's say, at yeah. practice, uh, even with teammates. What's the best example, speaking to the competitiveness of that guy at practice, you competing with? Well, um, let, let me say, man, these two guys were young guys when, when, when they came in with me, so I raised them. So it's, it's, it's a different deal when you talk about these young kids, um, as, as I was calling them as they was coming in. Um, to the league and so we wasn't we we weren't on the same you know competitive deal when he was coming in you know so he was more learning how to play the game um but what i will tell you is is that i understand when somebody has a heart of a lion and a heart of a champion and a heart of a giant and he had that from day one when he stepped into the building um nothing scared him okay nothing this man was ready to face anybody and anything at any moment and and so 
from that part, you just loved him on your football team, and you knew he was going to become who he became uh, because of his competitive nature and what he what he did. Now, of, of course, you know the stories, right, of, of him punching people and, and, and getting crazy with, with, with guys because he's so competitive about what he's doing. Um, that Now, that was him. He was fiery. He wasn't going to back down from anything, um, but he also respected, um, you know, the guys has been there and done it, and um, and you know that's the type of relationship we had. It was it was more from a big brother to a little brother deal, and and not um, really competitive in in practice um, against each other. But I could tell you this: he didn't back down from nobody or anything as it came to practice or the games. It's Mike Minter. Loved watching you with the Panthers. Love uh, what you're doing with Campbell. Look forward to being inside the stadium Friday night as Wake Forest hosts your team. Best of luck against the Demon Deacons. I hope we can catch up sometime soon. Hey, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, thanks for having me on your show. And and um, hopefully Friday night, man, we, we uh, get to compete at a high level against this great Power 5 team that we're facing in Wake Forest. That's great stuff. Mike Mentor, Panthers great. Campbell head coach. 7 o'clock kickoff at Truist Field Friday night. Coming up. I want to go back to Chiefs-Ravens, much to Robert's chagrin. I got a crazy Lamar stat, and there are three attributes I think he still needs to develop in order to get to that next level. It's all on the way on a Tuesday drive. Make some noise, make some noise, let's go! You're on the drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. All right, we got a new segment that we're, uh, we're going to debut right now. I don't know if we're going to do it every single week, but throughout the football season, one of the bigger questions is where's Trevor Lawrence going to be playing football in 2021? He's already made it known. He graduates in December. This is going to be his last season with the Tigers. We have no idea where he's going to be playing because we have no idea who's going to finish dead last in the NFL. But just because you finished dead last in the NFL doesn't necessarily mean you're going to draft Trevor Lawrence. I don't know if Cincinnati would be game for that. Or even if, let's say, the Atlanta Falcons. Yeah, they probably would still draft Trevor Lawrence. There are maybe five or six teams in the NFL that (laughs) would not draft Trevor number one if they had the top pick. So... We were trying to think of something funny to name this segment. We came up with Despair for the Hierarchy because that's apparently the name that you like most in terms of tanking campaigns that I don't think the Panthers are really in the running for after their win yesterday or two days ago. But Despair for the Hair sounds better for uh, than Tank for Trevor or even Pull the Lever for Trevor, even though I know you like that one a lot, Robert. So this is Despair for the Hierarchy. Who will get to draft Trevor Lawrence in that sweet flow? It's just hair. It's no biggie. Your hair, your hair. Josh ranks the teams in the running for this week's Despair for the Hierarchy. Way too much imaging. Way too much polish for how ridiculous this segment is. But 
Number five on this list. Robert, give me the voice that makes this segment sound even more polished. Number five. I'm going with the Atlanta Falcons. I was thinking Cincinnati might go in this spot, but Cincinnati isn't going to draft Trevor Lawrence if they're dead last. I think they'll stick with Joe Burrow through thick and thin. I don't even think the Dolphins would draft Trevor if they had the number one pick either. So Atlanta is the team because they've blown a couple of leads. They might go full tank and firing their coach if they don't win this weekend. But this is a crazy stat, Robert. Did you know that Atlanta has scored the second most points in the NFL this season? That does not surprise me at all. <laughs> Atlanta scored the second most points in the NFL, and they don't have any wins. That's crazy. So I have the number five, despair for the hierarchy. I know you were looking for the Philadelphia Eagles. They are not in the top five. But I feel like they would also be a team that has to be like, uh, do we, would we want him? And you see how Carson Wentz has played? Duh. Of course they'd want him. I don't know how to explain what's happening with Carson Wentz because he is not playing well. Last year it was pretty explainable. Hey, it's Boston Scott and Greg Ward Jr., and that's it. The weapons aren't that great right now, but it looks a whole lot worse than it did even a year ago. Yeah, and we can still say injuries with them, but the one dude that you just mentioned is still there, and he was his best receiver in the in the game last week. Yeah. Do you do this thing where if you don't know somebody by their jersey number – you just call them by a player from 10, 15 years ago who wore that same jersey. I'm terrible with numbers. Right, like every time um, there is a number 31 picking off a pass at corner for the Packers, I'm going to say Al Harris. That's just what's going to come to mind. Or number 29's running it for the Raiders, and I'm going to say Justin Fargus out loud. Even though Justin Fargus hasn't played for a decade, Greg Ward Jr., I think, wears number 84. But I didn't know that until Sunday. So when he caught a touchdown pass, I yelled out loud, Freddie Mitchell! (laughs) And I haven't thought about Freddie Mitchell since he made that 4th and 26 catch against Green Bay in the 2004 playoffs. So it's been over 15 years since uh, Freddie Mitchell's been in the consciousness. But that's what I do. I don't know if anybody else does that. Number four. Jacksonville Jaguars. We saw how bad it can look last week. They're getting blitzed by Miami. Not a good sign. This roster's been stripped apart. I think if it gets bad enough at a certain point, they're just going to fire Doug Marone because they don't want to risk him winning too much. So I just think the Jags, who we all thought was the worst team in the league going into the year, they're in the top five. They're one and two. It can get really bad and really bad quickly for Jacksonville. Number three. I'm going back and forth on this. I'm going New York Giants because I don't see a point this year where they just give up on Daniel Jones. I think they're trying to make it work, and in trying to make it work, I think they'll win just enough going up against Washington, going up against the Eagles, could even steal a game against the Cowboys. I want to rule that out. They're in a bad division. They can win some games. So... 
The Giants are at number three on this list. I was strongly considering putting them at number two, but I don't think they're completely out on Daniel Jones yet. They don't really have too much of a choice because right behind him is Colt McCoy. And I think I'll stick with DJ. Right, but what I'm saying is they still believe he could be the franchise quarterback. Like, they're trying to make that work and to develop him. And I think that's fair. I think it is too soon to make a judgment on whether or not he could be that guy. So just because that's the case, I think they're going to win enough not to be number one on the list. Number two. Or even number two. Denver Broncos. So many injuries. They might just punt. All this excitement about Drew Locke. Hey, look, he's on the sideline, and he knows all the words to a young Jeezy song. God, you love pulling that out, man. That's great. Everybody loves that. But he is a second-round draft pick out of Mizzou, and this is Trevor Lawrence. Right, we're talking about the same Denver Bronco organization that won a playoff game with Tim Tebow, but said, oh, we can get Peyton Manning? Yeah, 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 we're just going to do that. And it was the right decision. So if Denver stops winning, just period, stops winning, there's a good chance they might say, okay, let's go after Trevor Lawrence and get an offensive-minded coach. I don't know. How about a guy who went to the University of Colorado at Eric Bieniemy and have him be the guy than continuing down this path with Fick Fangio, uh, Fick Fangio Fangs, and uh, Drew Locke moving forward? A lot of injuries. I don't think anybody's dealt with more than Denver so I have them at number two. Number one. It's the Panthers. Got you for a second. The New York Jets. But here's who I feel bad for. I actually feel badly for Joe Douglas because he hasn't been there long enough to be the problem, and he's just trying to manage a bunch of fires. Jamal Adams wants out. Okay, I can't extend him. I need to get value out of this. All right, I'll, I'll, get, a, I'll get a lot of a big haul from Seattle, but the team's going to be bad as a result. I feel like if Adam Gase gets nuked, which is going to happen, so I should say when he gets fired, they're just going to fire everybody, including Douglas, and I don't think that's really fair. So the Jets, they're the front runner here, but here's the question I have. If they do let go of Gase, and they are the number one pick, or they do have the number one pick in our despair for the hierarchy rankings, what happens to Sam Darnold? I think next year is an option for him, right? Well, so like they can either take or choose not to take his option? No, I think we're still another year away from that. So, so this is his third year? This is his third year. So the fourth year he has, the fifth year is an option. They have to decide next year whether or not they're going to pick up the option, I think. I Watching him play, I would... I would say that Adam Gase is the biggest problem there. I don't think Darnold is the problem, and I still think that he can be a semi-decent starter in the league. Right. So why not hold on to him and try to get some trade value out of him if you do end up with that number one pick? Also, you don't want Trevor Lawrence having to start right out of the gate. No. So that is our despair for the hierarchy rankings this week. I made the case earlier that the ACC with Notre Dame in the mix, it's just as good as the SEC this year. And the reason why the ACC gets dogged on, it's only because of national perception. And here's the best example I can give you when it comes to what I mean talking about national perception. Last year, 
when Virginia was ranked in the top 25 and Wake Forest was there as well. They were the second and third best teams in the ACC. Granted, it was a down year for the ACC, but the way people talked about that fact alone was kind of uh, disconcerting. You heard people saying, the ACC is terrible because Wake Forest and Virginia are ranked that high. But when Kentucky is busting into the top 10 with Benny Snell at running back, I don't see people clowning the Southeastern Conference saying, hey, hey, you know, I know your conference is bad. You got Kentucky as one of your best teams. It's because they do a better job of messaging and the national perception is such that the SEC is king and everybody else is playing for second. That's what it is. So when LSU gets dropped by Mississippi State with a quarterback throwing for 600 yards, transferring from Stanford, who is perfectly average, you have people celebrating Mississippi State rather than clowning LSU, which is a stark difference to what happens with the ACC. The ACC, Clemson, they can win by 35 at Louisville, who was not a bad team last year, and they're going to drop in the poll. Their strength of schedule is going to be attacked. Is the same thing going to happen to the Big 12? Because if things were fair, if all things were equal, that would be the case. They only have one team in the top 15, and that's Texas, who should have lost to Texas Tech. I don't remember things ever being that bad for the ACC the last few years. I really don't. Nobody has been impressive in that conference. Oklahoma losing to Kansas State. Oak State struggling against Tulsa. Iowa State, who I'm told every year is going to be awesome, blowing it week one to Louisiana. So I hope the Big 12 gets the same disrespectful treatment that the ACC got. They deserve it. You are listening to the WSGS with the Salem, WCOG Greensboro, WPC in Burlington, WMFR High Point. Those signals make up sports up drive. Everybody, listen up. You're on the drive with Josh Graham. I can't believe this. This is insane. So from time to time, when you have a lot of time to think about things in the sports context for me, you have opinions that people think are crazy, and you have some where you might have a point, but some might not go as far as you're willing to go. I don't think what I'm saying is outlandish with Notre Dame and the ACC, that the conference is every bit as good as the Southeastern Conference is in 2020. In the past, it would be just ridiculous. It would be sacrilege to suggest that. The national perception is such that it just means more in the South, aside from the ACC schools, to think that the ACC was even in line with the SEC. But when I look at the top of the SEC, I see a national powerhouse in Alabama, and I see in the ACC a national powerhouse in Clemson, and then I see teams that are trying to knock on the door and finally bust it through like Georgia that's been to the playoff, and in that same playoff was Notre Dame. So I really do think the top of the league, which generally is how leagues altogether are defined, they are in lockstep with each other, the ACC and the SEC. But 
I go to people I trust and those I know who follow it closely to either affirm what I'm saying or just let me know if I'm a crazy loon. And that's why we bring in David Hale now from ESPN at a David Hale joint on Twitter. I'm not saying the SEC isn't as good as the ACC or the ACC is better than the Southeastern Conference. But I think with Notre Dame in the league, there's a fair argument you can make that the ACC is every bit as good. Am I crazy or do you think I had a point here? Um, well, I mean, your point aside, you are crazy. That's a, that's yes. beside the point. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to look at what the league was last year and say that this leap has been made this quickly. Um, because last year the league was terrible. There's just no other way around it. I would argue that the American was pretty far ahead of the ACC last year. But last year is last year, and this year, as you point out, particularly when it comes to Notre Dame, is drastically different. Uh, and I think when you look at some of the programs that are on the come up at this point, whether it's Carolina or Virginia Tech or Pittsburgh, um, I'm sure Louisville, I'm sure Miami, I'm more, but Miami, yeah, obviously, uh, there is, I think, a good argument to be made that these are quality, good teams that we should be taking seriously. Um, I think there's a couple of genuine distinctions between the SEC and the ACC. One is certainly recruiting. I mean, the bottom line is, if you look at the top 20 to 25 recruiting classes every year, yes, you see Clemson there every year. Yes, you see Miami every year. Uh, more years than not, you will probably see Carolina and then, of course, Notre Dame for this one year. Um, but outside of that, there's not this consistent recruiting juggernaut in the ACC. And in the SEC, I mean, even the kind of mediocre teams are recruiting pretty well. I mean, Tennessee and Kentucky and Ole Miss are getting players that, quite frankly, the uh, you know middle of the pack of the, the ACC is not getting. Um, now, you can argue that the ACC does a better job of developing their talent, and I think there's probably some credibility behind that argument, too. But the fact of the matter is the input coming into the SEC is better than the input coming into the ACC. Um, you know, how that plays out from year to year, I think, largely depends on coaching. It depends on quarterback play. Um, it depends on, um, you know, a lot of things. I, I think where the narrative really goes off the rails is the SEC's idea that, like, it's sort of this circular logic that the SEC can never do any wrong. If teams are bad, it's because they had to play the tough SEC schedule. And if teams are good, it's because they're great. And if anybody else is good, it's because uh, they didn't have to play anybody. But when the SEC uh, loses in a championship game, it's because they had to wait too long. And, or if they win, it's you know because they're battle-tested. There's, yeah. there's always some sort of logic that that promotes the SEC agenda. And, and look, I, again, I think if you take any 10-year period and look and say who was the best league over a 10-year period, in virtually every 10-year period you're going to come back and say it was the SEC. But I think there are blips within that um, that would show that other leagues have certainly had similar years. And I would argue that this year the ACC level of talent at the top, as you mentioned, is probably every bit as good as anybody else that's going to put teams out there this year. You mentioned coaching and quarterback play. I think those are two things that can really be equalizers. It's why I didn't think the North Carolina-Clemson game last year was a fluke. I thought Mac Brown and Sam Howe 
probably as good of a quarterback coach combo Clemson faced last year. And when I look at the the only thing I'd push back on what you're saying is that the ACC this year has far better quarterback play than what the SEC has. I think I'd probably take the top four ACC quarterbacks before I get to Bo Nix or Kellen Mond or even Kyle Trask, who had a really good game last Saturday, talking about Trevor Lawrence, De'Eric King, Ian Book, and Sam Howe. Yeah, I think that's not unreasonable to say. And when you look at the years over the past, you know, I don't know, during the playoff era, let's say, um, the years that the ACC has really been competitive with the SEC, and there's been a few of them, it has largely been because the quarterback play in one league has been markedly better than the other. And, and this is sort of the problem. Again, I, I really wince at the idea of the SEC is just so hard it eats its own. But I think a little bit of what happens is that the uh, competitiveness of trying to be Alabama within the SEC hurts SEC programs as a whole. I think it has watered down the coaching ranks there. I think that's one of the reasons you see Mike Leach come in and have the performance that, that Mississippi State did in the opener. Mike Leach is not trying to be Nick Saban, never has been and never will be, and I think that's laudable. Uh, there's too many SEC programs that are trying to be what Alabama is and do it Alabama's way as if that's the only way, whereas the ACC offers, I think, the opportunity for coaches who are outside the box a little bit more to explore the studio space. And I think that trickles down to your quarterbacks. So, I mean, you look at, at Mac Brown and Phil Longo, and, and I, this is sort of a bad example, I guess, because Phil Longo was doing this at Ole Miss um, with lesser talent, but they were putting good offenses on the field at Ole Miss with Phil Longo, and when he just couldn't get Sam Howell to Ole Miss. He's got Sam Howell at North Carolina. I don't know how Sam Howell would have fit if he was at Alabama or Georgia. I mean, we, we've seen good, good quarterbacks go to Georgia and struggle. We, we've seen... Um, you know, that, that that system is not really necessarily QB friendly because they're all trying to be not just what Nick Saban is now, but what Nick Saban was in 2013, and even Nick Saban doesn't want to be that anymore. So I think that's a little bit of it. And when you talk to coaches, there's just a pressure to not just win in the SEC that is unlike anywhere else, but win it in a certain way in the SEC that is unlike anywhere else. Whereas you look at the ACC's coaching staff, and I would argue it's probably – from a approach, X's and O's, just who they are, personality, what they're all about. It's as a diverse a group as that. I mean, Dave Clawson is unlike anyone else in college football. Bronco Mendenhall is unlike anyone else in college football. And uh, that's not a coincidence that they're in the places that they are. David Hale with us here from ESPN, college football reporter, his story today. Clemson coach Dabo Swinney on board with Black Lives Matter messages, but not the politics, saying that he doesn't want uh, those messages on nameplates, player uniforms, and says it's because he's a traditional guy. Now, we've seen in the age of all these social justice initiatives and how a lot of it blends in with social media, there are white coaches who have been clumsy around issues of race. We saw what happened with Mike Norvell and Marvin Wilson, a misunderstanding about some of the things that Norvell uh, said in the public, but Wilson said didn't follow through on actually behind the scenes. And we've seen it other places too. But Dabo, he seems to attract the bulk of the attention, or at least the criticism when it comes to 
being uh, not being an ally in every way to the movement that the players seem very interested in pushing forward. Talking about Darian Rincher and Trevor Lawrence, who have been very outspoken this offseason. Why is it you think that Dabo's the coach who's attracting the most attention in this regard? Uh, you know, I've given this a lot of thought, and I, I don't know that I know the answer for sure, but this is sort of my working theory on it. I think number one is Dabo has never presented himself as the inside-the-box coach. I think to his credit, he's been very open with his thoughts and beliefs, and uh, he's always been a media-friendly guy. He is a guy who sits, who likes to be in front of a camera and talk. It's what he does. Um, I think to some extent, I mean, that's, he's, he's long, uh, sold himself as sort of the anti Nick Saban in that sense. So you ask like, why does he get asked questions that Nick Saban doesn't? I think, (laughs) I think on one hand, it's partly because (laughs) there is people who are afraid to ask Nick Saban those questions that are not afraid of Dabo. And I think on the other hand, it's just that that is Dabo's history is that he's been that guy. Uh, and then the other part of it is, I think, you know, Saban, for better or worse, has, I think, always set himself up as I'm getting guys ready to play professional football. And Dabo's pitch, uh, and largely I think this is true, is always been I'm creating men. And so you can't uh, sell yourself as the program that is doing it differently, that is holistic in how you approach these players' lives, not just how you approach their football lives. And part of what these players' lives are is the social issues that we're discussing right now. And so it is, uh, I think, fair to ask him these questions, whereas um, somebody like like Nick Saban does not often um, introduce these subjects into his way of doing things. So um, I think there's something to that. And, and uh, look, I don't think that Dabo is um, unaware of everything, but... Part of the other thing I was thinking about today, too, is that, you know, you look at somebody like Saban, who just, you know, is clearly a football obsessive person. You look at somebody like Ed Orgeron, and, and sort of what we like about him is that he's sort of that meathead Cajun football guy. And you look at somebody like Mike Gundy, and, and you just need to look at the haircut to have a pretty good idea of what you think Mike Gundy's all about. Um, and, and so it's easy for us to sort of shrug off the idea that they're not super plugged in on what else is going on in the world outside of football. That's probably more true of Dabo too, than people give him credit for or take credit from, I guess, but it is, you know, because he presents himself as somebody who is about more than football, people want something more than football from him. David Hale with us here. This is a more broad question when it comes to, sports media altogether, and I hope there are some in the audience who might find this interesting, but you were going, there was a media outlet, air quote, that came after you today that said that you should be asking football coaches about um, college football rather than asking about Black Lives Matter and really what's happening with the players' movements and their interests in social justice initiatives and such, I'm less interested in the criticism in that regard than I am a few weeks ago when a local newspaper, our local newspapers here in the triad, lay off Ed Harden, lay off Connor O'Neill, who was the only newspaper beat writer based in the triad covering Wake Forest, yet 
with all due respect to Les Johns, I love what he's doing. There's a lot of people who do the internet blog space and team site space, uh, space pretty well. But it seems to me this might be where we're headed, where a lot of the coverage of sports, college sports specifically, does well in the slanted space, understanding that people who might start these sites, people who might be running these sites, are acknowledging a bias and a slant up front. As somebody who works at ESPN, where do you see the sports media heading, at least in how college sports is covered? Yeah, <laughs> this is a existential question that I'm not sure I have a good answer to, but Am I making sense, though? Yeah, no, 100%. And and I will say, you know, when Connor and and Ed were were laid off in particular, and and I have friends other places that have been through similar recently, um, I mean, it's like a gut punch to me because beyond the fact that I care about these people and like them and know them and and think they do a good job, it does feel like a, a genuine existential crisis for our industry. And I don't mean to belittle the sites that are taking it from a different approach. Absolutely. I think our media landscape is better when we have different people doing different things for different audiences. That's great. You know, you don't, you don't want to turn on cable TV and have it be 50 sports channels. You know, you want a, a, a diverse array of, of media you can consume. So I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with the fact that, um, and this is sort of where things, <laughs> the Twitter argument today came from is that, when those sites that have a genuine bias pro team, uh, which is okay for, by, my, by my thoughts, but when you have that, but you have assumed that that is the standard that everyone should be working by, and when people are doing their job as a legitimate objective journalist or as objective as we can be, um, that those people are biased. And I think that's very problematic. And the fact of the matter is stuff like this, the, the issues like the social justice You'd have to be blind to not see that this is uh, an issue directly impacting people in college sports. You know, when we talk about COVID-19, beyond just are we playing games or not, the impact this is having on higher education and what that means for college athletics long term, these are huge things. And people want to put their their head in the sand and ignore them because they only want to hear the rah-rah, go team stuff. You know, that that's their choice and their outlets to go do that. And unfortunately, I think that's the direction that things are going. And, and clearly we see what's happening at newspapers. But one day we're all going to wake up and wonder how the hell we got to this place that we're in, because the world is changing around us, whether you want to see the change happening or not. And I always am a believer that, you know, information is good and you might not always like the information, but you're better off having it. Um, and, and that's what the job of, of journalists like Connor and Ed and, and so many others who are now being kind of cast aside, that's what their job has been, and that's what they've done a really good job at doing. And, and I hope more, uh, people appreciate it. I, I think more people appreciate it than what the, the general sense of consensus around the media today would have you believe. Um, more than Twitter, more than Twitter might say, because you're talking about uh, Twitter's not real life, man. It's 22% of adults in in the United States. It it is not real life. And and I will, I will say too, you know, the other thing and and is that I I think, you know, we could go down this rabbit hole here, but I think polarization is sort of at the, the, the core of what our media consumption is all about. And I don't mean it just politically. I think it, it goes 
with everything. It's sort of like you're either the best or the worst, and, and nuance and context is not a thing that people want to consume that much of anymore. Um, and, and so, you know, you look at Twitter even, and I think that you see these utterly uh, polarized reactions to things um, where people are just so angry on one side or the other, and people who don't want to be a part of that anger and have that in their lives stay quiet. And so even that 22% of adults that you're talking about, the real voices that are getting out there, I think, are a much smaller percentage than even that. Uh, and, and to some degree, all of this kind of comes back to a defensive Dabo here, and that I think that's where he's at. Is he's just like, I don't want to come down strong on one side of this or the other right now. And, but even in this day and age, like being apolitical is, in fact, a political statement. And so it's, it's just really hard not to feel sort of cornered at this point. And, and, you know, there's some places that I think are making a whole lot of money off of serving those interests. And then there's people who are really good at their jobs who are uh, sort of the victims of that mindset. Yeah, follow him on Twitter, at a David Hale joint. Be nice. Don't tell him to stick to sports, at least <laughs> just for this one time. Uh, appreciate you spending the time as always, the thought, the insight. Uh, it's it's top-of-the-line stuff. I hope you're doing well and that we can do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Good talking. Yeah, you got it. That's David Hale from ESPN. And again, like, after what happened with Connor at the Winston-Salem Journal, I just started thinking, who's covering Wake Forest? Thank goodness, like Les Johns, he's one of the good ones when it comes to those who run those type of sites. But when you just see the garbage that's spewed by this site that's covering Clemson, that I think is credentialed, you're just wondering, what the hell are we doing, man? And if that's if that's the only thing, hypothetically, if it wasn't less at Demon Deacon Digest, and it was this guy who was covering Wake Forest, that would be all we have. Actually, I think Connor now is doing it for the News and Observer, but I think you kind of get the point I'm trying to make here, that if newspapers aren't valuing that type of local coverage, having beat writers and such, and the only people who are willing to do that type of grunt work are uh, slanted towards the team, and admittedly so. What does that do to the overall information that we get as a whole? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm glad David was as interested in that topic as I was. All right, Robert, what do we got in ticket to the house today? Uh, Polly wanna. What? What the are we doing next? Can you say that again? I'm not going to bleep it this time if you make me say it again. I dare you. Polly wanna. 